Fualcha, 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 Akharjagil. This is episode 68 of the Rebel Matters podcast. We're still in the midst of the lockdown and the throes of the COVID-19 pandemic, so I hope you're all keeping well and safe. This week's guest on the podcast is Mark Graham from King Kong Company. He's also a music lecturer in WIT and is also the host of the Irish Music Industry podcast, which is a really great podcast that I would recommend you all go and check out if you haven't already been listening to it. It was number one in the Irish podcast charts a week or two ago. So go and listen to it after you've listened to this one. This was a bit of a longer chat than usual, just because we were in the zone and having a good time having the chats, which is what the podcast is all about. So I'm going to keep the introduction part nice and short, but I just want to do a couple of things first. First of all, I want to give a massive shout out and a massive thank you to Emmett Walsh for designing the new logo for the podcast and doing some visuals for us. I think it's class. You can check it out on the Rebel Matters Instagram page which is rebel underscore matters. And also I would really recommend following Emmett on Instagram. It's underscore jowl 666 underscore. So it's D-I-A-B-H-A-L 666. Emmett also does the visuals for kneecap and has got some really amazing art pieces there. Just the stuff that he does himself and puts up on the page. So give him a follow if you want to see some uh, class art. The other thing that I want to do before we get stuck into the show is thank all of the patrons of the show, everyone who's supporting the show on Patreon, and especially Vicky and Lindsay, who just came on last week as patrons. Thanks a million, lads. These are all an absolute bunch of legends. I did a little bit of work on the Patreon page for the podcast, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash rebel matters. I made three tiers that people can pick from to support the show based on three of my favourite Irish trees ash, willow and oak so if you want to find out a little bit more about those trees and see how you can support the podcast if you want to then you can go to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters otherwise lads thanks a million for listening being listeners to the podcast and being supporters of the podcast and sharing it on social media I really appreciate the fact that you have taken the time to listen to this episode and other episodes if you've listened to other episodes as well the support for the podcast just people messaging and sharing the episodes and uh, giving me a bit of feedback has really been a big booster during this time of social isolation so and keep her lit the other thing that I was going to say before we get stuck into this chat is that at the end of this episode I've got the second chapter of the Last of the Name by Charles McGlinchey, which is a personal account that Charles McGlinchey gave of his life in uh, Minchie Glen in Donegal between 1861 and 1854. And it is an absolutely fascinating window into a time gone by. So if you want a bit of storytelling, then let the outro music play out at the end of the episode. And then chapter two of the book can be found there. Chapter one of the book and the Introduction, which was written by Brian Friedel, can be found on the previous episode to this here. I think that's it, lads. Let's get stuck into this chat with Mark Graham. We started off having a bit of a catch-up and just chatting about how we were getting on during the lockdown. And then 
ended up chatting about a whole host of things from music to King Kong Company to festivals and what it's going to be like when the restrictions are lifted. Overall, it was a really enjoyable chat, so I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Bonnie Gisaltas. It does highlight what's important to, to people as well, you know, that the first thing you think of is family and, you know, you're checking in with family regular and then you're thinking of your friends and it kind of prioritizes that stuff. And maybe it shows us that we, you know what, maybe we don't have to work as much as we do. That's like, see the first week, what happened, what was happening with me was I was here. So I, I, like the last month has been, it's been kind of mental, like not even say the last like two months really now at this stage, like between going over to Palestine for a couple of weeks and working on the project over there, which was really intense. And then it came back to Cork for three days and then went to America with kneecap for, mm. which was meant to be like, uh, 12 days, I think. And it got cut short to seven days because all the, all the gigs except for one, one got canceled. And then I was originally meant to be going back to Palestine straight from America, but then Palestine Push. went on shutdown. So then that was canceled. So then I was going to go to Peru and thank fuck I didn't go because sure they went on military yeah, lockdown. Yeah, that's Yeah, yeah, straight yeah. Away. And then I came back here and the next thing, like it was like the next day I woke up, but it was like in the house and I was like, right, I was like, I need to get, I start all of a sudden really fast, started filling up my day to be really busy again. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. where I should have just fucking took my time to like kind of embrace the space or whatever. So that's kind of what I've been doing a little bit more now this week and stuff like that there, just not trying to fill every minute of the day like and it's Jesus crazy. you had some busy you had a busy few weeks there didn't you I was following the, the photographs from the gym in Palestine it looked fantastic you got you got a lot of work done there didn't you and we like we got there just on time and we also in fairness like to the rest of the was six of us went out there all together like we just uh, between ourselves and the, the the people who were working with in Palestine like we just to get came together and just we just fucking nailed it like it was unreal we're just in the zone and it that was a really intense experience because we were kind of juggling to getting the project done and getting the gym set up along with going to visit people and trying to get a picture of trying to get an idea of the bigger picture in Palestine, you know? So you had to, like we were organizing trips and stuff to meet other people and go to different places and stuff like that there. So that to get as wide of a broad an experience as possible, especially for the rest of the crew who were never there before. And then, and then trying to like just process everything that was going on. So we were staying up late trying yeah. to just like talking through the itinerary and this is what happened today and trying to make sense of stuff, which can be quite difficult out there a lot of the time because a lot of it doesn't make any sense at all. And then, yeah, it was, just cla- it was class being over there. You know, do you ever see when you just get into the zone with something and you're just like, you know, if it was going to be like that for six months, you would just be dead, but you know, it's only for a couple of weeks. So you just push yourself to the very yeah, edge just and just get through it. go for yeah. it. And then you're like, I'll take a break at the end of all this. That's what we were all like, which was... It's just a, it's a nice place to be in as well when you're in that kind of, kind of flow kind of state or whatever. That's amazing, amazing thing to do. It would it would have been very interesting to go there from America as well and compare that 
to travel in there from Ireland to see is there any differences in that. That would have been interesting. And you see the airport in Tel Aviv. It's it's the most one of the most fucked up places I've ever been to in my life. And I've been in through both directions from Tel Aviv now like three times. And like the first time that I went over there was March 2018. We were in the airport for like eight or nine hours before they let us out, out of the airport. It was questioning and uh, yeah. it's they're paranoid. And also if they get any sense of people looking in there to do something that's going to benefit the Palestinians, then obviously they, they don't like that. So uh, it would have been really interesting to. Yeah. It would have been really interesting actually to go from America. I actually got a little bit of heat in the airport in Dublin because it was just after coming back. And I just to explain, you know, you, you, the, pre, the pre-clearance thing, you know, where you, the American customs are there or whatever. And got a few questions about Palestine and stuff. But uh, you, you kind of get used to it being able to talk to them and stuff, you know, like it's when you're talking to the security personnel from America or Israel as well, like you just don't even mention the word Palestine. You just say Israel. And it's like half the battle for them, I guess. What have you been up to these days? Um, I'm, I was working from home for the last two weeks because I teach in WIT. I teach on the BA music course. So we switched everything that we were delivering to the students online. <clears throat> Excuse me. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been getting to grips with a couple of online tools to help them do the stuff that we would have been doing in the studio in the college. So we're doing all that stuff online now. So for the last two weeks, did some video classes, made some videos and kind of familiarized myself with the stuff that I was going to ask them to use. Yeah. So it's, I think it's been kind of busier the last two weeks with the college stuff. And today we're kind of going into the Easter holidays, but it's not really Easter holidays as they would be because everything has shifted online. We're still going to be checking in with students and students are going to be checking in with me over the Easter break as well, because we have only week and a half after the Easter break. And that was the end of their, that was meant to be the end of the semester, but we've going to push things on submissions and things on a, a little bit as well. So trying to do stuff to take as much pressure off the students as possible. You know, it, it kind of, when we're thinking about that stuff, I was kind of conscious that you don't know what people are, where they are when they're at home. You know, if, if, if there's a student in the class, they could be going home to a house with two brothers and sisters, their mother and father, and everyone, you know, the, the mother and father could be working online during the day. The brother and sister could still be in school and the teachers are asking them to do stuff online. So it's very difficult to to ask students to do stuff online as well and make more demands them because you don't know what kind of friction you're going to create at home with access to that stuff. So trying to find ways to get the work done without putting pressure on the students. That's what I've been trying to do for the last two weeks. And I think I think I found a way to do that. It's I was thinking about this the other day. Like It's mad the way, you know, like we're most people are confined to their houses now and it nearly it nearly requires like a next level sort of mutual respect for each other's space because it's not like people can just walk away you know we all have our phones on us basically all the time and i've just been conscious of like respecting other people's space even though we're all alone or whatever and people like to touch base with each other but like you're saying like you just don't know what i guess emotions are kind of heightened as in a, in a way for a lot of people you just don't know what's yeah. happening at the house in a, in a house it's, in a space. It's it's that as well. But you know, if you were to believe my social media feeds, everyone is baking, gardening, and doing online gigs. <laughs> you know, that's 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 if you're to believe. But if you think of people who aren't as lucky as people who have laptops or who have good broadband and who don't have a lot of money coming into their house, 
there might be some awful situations. You know, let's say let's call a spade a spade. There are some awful situations around the country where people are in situations in their home that are far from ideal. You know, there could be abusive relationships in the home, and when you're stuck in that, and I don't think we're hearing those stories, and I don't think we're likely to hear a lot of those stories in the coming weeks. But I think we have to be aware that it's not all bacon and garden and, and online gigs. That there's a lot of people under pressure. I think it'll be interesting to listen to, you know phone calls from the Samaritans and see what their statistics are at the moment or for Childline and to see what's happening there because I imagine that there's a lot of stuff going on behind closed doors that we have absolutely no idea of, you know? That's the thing. Like, you you think, like, you know that those things are going on on a regular time, but at least there's probably a bit of freedom when people can get away from the house or whatever. And even, like, even, like, when you think about, like, the potential for like mental health to take a big hit as well, even if you're not in an abusive household or whatever, like, but you know the way, like it, it's such a, it's such a challenge and time to be in the same place by yourself all the time. We're cut away, potentially cut away from all your social, um, your social circle and everything like the kind of infrastructure that yeah. you might, might be really important for you to keep your, your mental health in check and stuff like that. Um, and I live next to a direct provision centre down here in, in Tremor. There's a couple of them around the town here in Tremor. And I was hanging out the washing. Uh, I think it was, it was on Saturday. And I heard a fella singing, you know, and I went, geez, that sounds lovely. And it was the call to prayer. He was doing the call to prayer on his mobile phone, videoing himself in the garden. So whoever was logged in with him, he was delivering, he was singing the call to prayer just out in the back garden of the house there wow. with himself on, on Skype. Really interesting to watch and a whole different angle on things. Yeah, and that Actually, that kind of just brings me back to the, the place where the gym that we put the gym in in Palestine is in the, at the refugee camp, the, the Laji Centre in the, at the Ada refugee camp. But they call the prayers every whatever, four or five hours. And I remember just standing on the top the roof garden there and just listening to the call of the prayer and looking around. It's... It's mad to think back to the times before this all kicked off. Like, it just seems like so long ago. Yeah. But you know what I was thinking? Um, there's one thing is, like, I know it has been so nice where people have been, like, checking in with each other. And the online stuff has been, like, I, like I was in um, on the Mary Wallopers gig there a f- couple of weeks ago. And yeah, I was, was watching it myself. Class, yeah, it was I was. That was brilliant. Fucking yeah, yeah. buzzing during it. I didn't know how much. Yeah. I didn't know how much I needed it until I was there taking part in it. And you see people's comments coming up, and you see people you know logging in and all having a couple of cans of Beamish or whatever when they were doing it, and it was magic. So it was, yeah, it was brilliant, and they did a great job on it because I think at this stage I kind of have streamed gig fatigue at the moment because there are just so many of them. <laughs> But the lads got in there early and they didn't just get in there early. They did a brilliant job on it. And I think the personalities that 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 all three of them have, I think, really carry that. It was like a television program. You know, you, you tune yeah. in every week to watch that, yeah. you know, and I'm looking forward to Good Friday already. You know, yeah. that, that'll be great crack. I think it'll even be better on Good Friday. You now they have the hang of it. And, you know, what the um, one of the funniest things about it was, you know, like they were giving it absolute welly during the songs and then. At the end, you know, when they finish the song, and normally if it was an, an audience, everybody would be cheering, but yeah, there's just, no... Just silence. <laughs> yeah, just silence. Yeah. And like, like, there was a couple of, yeah. there was a couple of comments there, and it was obvious that, like, I mean, 
I think it got up near 4,000, about 3,600 at one stage. Yeah. And there were some people going, who are these lads? And you're, you're going, <laughs> they, just, they obviously just saw a link on Facebook and came in and said, what's going on here? And that was brilliant as well. It was like being in a pub, you know, with somebody going in and going, what's going on here? Just yeah. coming in for a look, you know, it's brilliant. Yeah. And Charles told me that they got sent videos afterwards of people playing along with them. They said there was an owl lad somewhere and he was playing the tin whistle with them. You know, somebody sent them a video of somebody playing along with them while they were playing. That's brilliant to hear oh, that yeah. as well. Yeah, it was, they did some job on it. That's brilliant. Um, I know they're talking about um, about getting in early. <clears throat> I'm sure some, something that we'll probably be talking about anyway during the course of the episode here. But like when we were in America uh, with Kneecap and the, the first gig was on the 6th of March and that went ahead in New York and it was sold out and it was great. But it was just... It was just at the sort of tipping point where things were getting really serious with the the health situation, the public health situation. And even that night after the gig, we were in a bar and, you know, in America, like there's most of the bars have loads of TVs and stuff in them. And the bar was packed. The after party, like we're all squished in, out, trying to just have a couple of drinks to chill after the after the gig, or whatever. And then the TVs all had like, like flashing red, writing news bulletins coming across, like coronavirus, bang, bang, bang. We're right in Manhattan, and then, uh, and then the next couple of days, then all the rest of the gigs, six six out of the seven gigs, then got cancelled. And then they, um, they set up the kind of like little crowdfunder thing to, to just try and help cover the cost of the, of the tour and everything like that there. And it was su- such a kind of like, I guess like an endorsement of all the work they've done. And it was really nice to see how, how much the fans and stuff got behind them and chipped in to contribute to that there. And I think that they did it right at the right time as well, right at the beginning. And even like whenever I came back from the trip, and came back in here. It was straight on, and it was like on the it was the band Nudan from Waterford. I gave them a little bit of support. Got some Lankan merch and stuff like that there. And I think that maybe in general, I think that people are are making the effort like to support the local kind of their or their favorite musicians and artists at the minute. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, you know, you're kind of thinking about that and. The way the way I was kind of looking at it, and this is from where I'm sitting, and I'm kind of lucky that I have a job as well. You know that we've we had a load we've had a load of gigs cancelled, and same as everybody else. And the gigs that we've had cancelled with King Kong Company, we had kind of spent that money in advance. You know, we we're building up to the summer. We've we've the biggest gigs we've ever had coming up. Well, we might have the biggest gigs we ever had coming up this summer, and we were investing in the show for that. You know, we we employ a fairly large team and we're looking to expand that team this year and we're just not going to be able to do that now and we're kind of looking at well in the scheme of things is a gig really that important you know it's important that people make a living but put it in context one of the lads in the band is a bus driver and he's out of work now probably till september so he has no income coming in at all and when you look at his situation in relation to the band that's more important you know, looking after your friends and family rather than being concerned about are we going to have enough money to pay for visuals for a gig at Electric Picnic? For us, that's not really that important in the in the context of all the stuff that's going on. We'll be grand. We'll get to do our gigs again. I know that there's other bands. What, what I'd be kind of concerned about is that other acts that, you know, there's a lot of people who kind of walk a very fine line between doing the thing that they love creatively 
and having to pack that in for stability for something that's that's more dependable and you know kind of the nine to five and i think that a lot of people are going to get to the other side of this and they're just not going to be able to afford to do the thing that's creative or they're going to see that it left them in a precarious position and they're not going to follow that creative side of their lives and they're going to go with something that's a bit more sustainable and i was kind of thinking what what could you do for artists and bands? And I did the same myself. I donated to the Mary Wallopers. I've been on a few of the, a few of the, the live streams. There's a mate of mine, Cav, who I've played with bands for years. And Cav, Cav is going on every second night and just doing gigs from his shed, you know, and they're great crack. And you throw a few bob in there. But I was kind of thinking that maybe something that would be valuable as well is as well as, you know, do all of that. You know, buy the merch, support them on Patreon or GoFundMe or whatever, whatever they're doing to raise money. But I think what might be as important, if not more important for some artists is send them a message and tell them why what they do is really important to you. You know, kind of even though we're not allowed to touch people and we're not allowed to go out and meet people, I think having contact with people and establishing contact and maintaining contact is going to be really important. That I think if you send somebody a message, especially somebody who might be sitting down in their house now thinking, I'm not going to be able to do gigs anymore. I might have to give this up and go and do something else. If you sent them a message telling them why what they do is really important to you, why it moves you and why you relate to what they do, that might be the thing that sustains them. You know, that sustaining somebody through something like this isn't just about money or isn't just about, you know, because some of the people in our band, I'm lucky enough that I can work for home, but, you know, friends and and people from the band are, are signing on. And they're getting that emergency payment and it's great to to get that to sustain you. But I think sustaining isn't just about money as well. I think sustaining can be about something else. And if you reached out to somebody and sent them a message like that, I think that would be more valuable than streaming their songs and, you know, playing what they have on Spotify. But if you do that in conjunction with all the other stuff, I think that would be really valuable. That's such I mean, that's such a class thing to say. I'm so happy that you said that. Um, and that's like definitely something that everybody can do. Like, you know, I was thinking. Yeah, and it doesn't cost that. Exactly. Because I was thinking like earlier on this week, I was like, I'm glad that I gave the support to buying a bit of merch or just sending a couple of quid into people's fun, um, fundraising things or going on to the online gigs when I had the chance because that was before things got really serious. And then, you know, like the further this goes on as possible, like people are going to have less money, but you're hundred percent right. Like that's it. Yeah. I'm just thinking if somebody sent me a message saying here, you all your stuff is really good. Even when it happens the odd time, like it just gives me such a boost. So you're exactly. Fucking, yeah. yeah. And, and you can spend, you'll spend the money, the money will be gone. But messages like, like I, I used to write a thing about festivals. That was a good few years ago. Now I used to travel around writing about festivals and I wrote a book. And when I finished that, I got, Oh man, I got an email from a fella and it made me cry what he said in the email. And I still have that. I can't spend that. I'll have that. And I'll have that always. You know, something like that. There's a lot of value and that will really sustain somebody. Yeah, that's such a class thing to to, to do. Fucking everyone should do that. That's like, <laughs> that should be the next campaign. Fuck it. Don't make it a campaign. Just people <laughs> do it, you know. Right. There's, enough, there's enough. It's organic. Fun, you know. Yeah, you know, the thing is that Oh man, every time you go online, somebody's pulling on your sleeve for something. And sometimes it's just nice when, you know, somebody would do that without it being part of a campaign. Don't peer pressure anybody into it. Just fucking do it. Like, yeah, you're right. And actually, you are right. It, it, it mean, it, I'm sure it means a lot more if it's just spontaneous. Mm. But um, yeah, yeah. Tell me this here. 
what's been them? Um, what's been the path that you've you've kind of gone taken or walked along to get yourself to where you are and doing what you're doing today? Um, I, I think I was, I was doing an interview with a fella. Uh, oh, it was a couple of months ago. There, I got asked. You know, it was one of those long on interviews where he kind of went through a lot of stuff that I did and the answer that I kept coming up with he, he was asking me you know are you not mad busy or have you not been mad busy in the past when you you know you've been doing loads of things and I think the trick to it is or the way that I that I am where I am and I don't I'm not I'm not really anywhere that brilliant or anything but I'm happy where I am and I think what I've done is I always do stuff that I like doing you know that it's work and all like but it's work that I enjoy doing like I'm Take, for example, I'm, I'm teaching in WIT now, but I'm, I'm teaching music students and I'm teaching them music technology and I'm in the recording studio with them and I'm using synthesizers with them. Like, I enjoy that stuff. That's stuff that I'd be doing anyway. And turning other people onto that stuff and listening to the stuff that they record and the stuff that they produce and what they create through that. Like, that's that's incredibly rewarding. The King Kong Company stuff, sure, we just have a laugh doing that. You know, that's... That's why we started doing that. You know, that's incredibly enjoyable. It's hard bloody work, but it's really enjoyable hard work. And uh, the podcast that I do, the Irish Music Industry Podcast, I'm learning more from that than I've ever learned about the music industry ever in playing gigs and stuff. That's And sitting down talking to people about that, that's incredibly enjoyable. Like five years ago, I wrote a book and published a book, and that was uh, a year of festivals in Ireland where I went to three festivals every week for a year. That was so enjoyable, it nearly killed me. And I didn't do it. I, I ended up doing it for three years instead of one year that I was meant to do it. So all of that stuff that I do, it's it all ties in with each other. But it's all enjoyable. I enjoy doing it. I have to be conscious of the fact that, it, and, and this is kind of something that, you know, somebody said to me through the podcast is that they burned themselves out after seven years because all the stuff they were doing, they loved doing it. And it didn't feel like work to them as a result. So they never took a holiday in seven years. And I'm conscious that I love doing what I'm doing. And I, I wouldn't mind clocking in a 12-hour day doing the stuff that I'm doing. But I have to know that there's either a long cycle or a swim in the sea or a spin-off in the van somewhere as well as that. You know, that I have to put that in there as well. Yeah. But all of it is stuff I enjoy doing. I think that's that's the trick of it for me anyway, the stuff yeah. that I do. I just love doing it. You know, there was weekends. There was like it got silly at one point because... It was getting a lot of coverage and Meteor, the phone company, I got like Vodafone sponsored me at one stage, but Meteor sponsored me another time. And they had this campaign of like they had a 30 day phone plan or something. So the idea was that I'd go to 30 festivals in 30 days that I'd up the ante. right? <laughs> so I, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And then I was thinking to myself, right, OK, I have to go to 30 festivals in 30 days now. So I can't drink like maybe I'll have a couple of points halfway through it, but I can't drink while I'm doing this. But you're the first festival I went to was a trad festival in County Waterford. I got hammered, like absolutely <laughs> hammered. Got a lock in. And there was just some festivals I didn't have any business at them if I wasn't drinking pints. You know, it I swear to God, like it, it did actually nearly kill me. I went for reflexology during it to try and calm myself down. And it was yeah, it was it was intense, but Jesus Christ, it was some laugh. I absolutely had a ball doing that. And one of the one of the, like, when I was talking about learning stuff about the music industry from the podcast, one of the things I learned from that year of festivals thing, and that was during the recession, that was in a pretty tough time. When, and that's kind of the reason I started doing that was because I, I applied for a mortgage and I got refused. And then I kind of, some voice in the back of my head kind of copped on 
and said, you know, the, the bank said, we'll give you a mortgage, but you have to have a 20% deposit and you have to show us that you'll be capable of paying X amount of money every month. And I kind of went off and said, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I can do that. And then a voice in the back of my head said, fuck them, I'm not doing that. So I bought a camper van instead. And that was brilliant. But one of the unseen advantages of that was I, I, I became familiar with the country in a way that I had never been before. I saw so many nooks and crannies. You, know, you think you know a place, but you never really get to know it intimately or deeply. And the more I went around in the van, the more I went to little villages and counties that I'd been in before that I thought I knew. But I never did. Like, you know, it's kind of like I'm from County Waterford and even cycling around the coast to County Waterford, there's still boreens that I've never been down. You know, there's still it's kind of I would kind of call it fractal geography. You know, those posters you get with the, the fractal images on them. And the closer you look at them, there's more in them. Yeah, you ever yeah, seen those? Yeah. You know, and you see the same shape when you look at it. And it's kind of like that with Ireland that, you know, you think you know a place and you've seen it. And then when you look closer at it, you go, oh, Jesus, there's a lot more to this. I've never been there, there and there. And the closer you look at that the more you see that actually there's so much in, I'd say like in 10 lifetimes, you'd never get to see the whole country that we have underneath us, you know, people's houses, you know, the, the little places where they live, places, you know, like being brought up the, 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 the mountains, the Schlieve Bloom mountains to, to milk a goat on Imbolc, you know, by people <laughs> who live in the place. You, you, like there's so much of that shit going on every single day of the week that, you never get to see in a lifetime yeah it's for such a small country like even the even the the variation and the accents that we have in this country are huge oh, compared, crazy. like do you know, yeah, compared to man, they like a drive like 20 or 30 minutes down the road and people are talking completely differently it's yeah. mad um here that thing you were saying about enjoying you know doing things that you really enjoy actually at any time i hear like anytime the conversation goes in that way with people i always think back to after the first um year and a half or so of setting up the gym in Cork. So we've been open, it'll be seven years this year. So it was opened up originally at the end of 2013. And I remember after the first year and a half, like I was just, just made a couple of mistakes with like, because it didn't have a clue about how to run a business, you no, know, like from a financial point of view and all that there is. And we ended up just kind of in a good bit of debt and stuff out there. And I was like, oh, I just remember one day walking home and I was living in an apartment by myself around the corner from the gym, which was outside the city and there wasn't much like it, it was kind of like a, a dead enough like it was in a kind of dead enough area at the time whatever I just remember walking home and I was getting it was lashing rain and I was like oh this I was like fuck this I was like this is not what I want to be doing I was like I'm not even enjoying this anymore and I just remember that night making a decision to change how we were doing it and only do the things that I felt like I would enjoy doing and I could really get behind or that I would enjoy doing if I was one of the members or whatever and um, that's kind yeah. of just kind of went from there and it's a completely different, it's a completely different thing, isn't it? Like when you're doing it that way compared to yeah, doing it from a duty point of view. Yeah, it sounds like a simple thing, but it, it's not because, you know, you, people can tell you stuff. And, you know, I'd, I'd be wondering if, you know, people say you should try doing that. And I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I should, you know, maybe that's the way, especially when it comes to music. If you're in a band and, you know, somebody who's been doing this for a long time, like say a manager or a booking agent or somebody you respect comes along and says, you know what, lads, you should be doing this this way. You kind of go, oh, yeah, maybe you, we should be doing And then somebody else will tell you, and actually you should be doing this as well. And after a couple of years of that, you could turn around and you go, hang on a fucking minute. What am I doing? This isn't what I want to be doing at all. You know, that it's very easy to get pulled off in a different direction. And who who told, who told me something very interesting about that was Dahi. Um, do you know Dahi yep, plays yep, the fiddle? Yep. And 
uh, electronic music. Dahi, like Dahi was signed to a label and released an album and he, it was a development deal where he was getting, he, he was working with producers and other musicians who were bringing him along and showing him the structure of pop songs and how stuff was working. And he released that album and he said it himself, it was good and all, but he didn't feel like it was him on the album. And when he left the record label, the first song that he released was the song with his grandmother on it. And that took off for him. You know, it was when he freed himself from that stuff. And then he said, you know what, I'll do something that I want to do. And the thing that he wanted to do didn't conform to what they advised him at all. Like it was five minutes long. It had a sample of his granny in it and it didn't have a chorus, but it was fucking brilliant. And not only was it brilliant, he loved it. You know, he, he, re, he like so proud of that, you know? Yeah. That's right. There's something in that. Yeah, I know. It's such such a class tune. Like, and so you know that thing you're talking about in in the music industry. Like, I mean, um, recently enough, I've I've been trying to get like a uh, some sort of like a diagram inside my head about the whole sort of structure of the music industry. And so, what the way that I've kind of like built this picture in my head is that a lot of the time that there's the mainstream, which seems to be quite often built to like kind of like what you were saying there it's kind of built to a formula where this is the structure and this is the length of it and this is how it kind of has to sound in a way and then that can go into the mainstream and then there's another band that is below that which is kind of the same as the mainstream stuff but it's just not getting played on the radio for one reason or another and then and then there's another band outside of that which is like the underground stuff that doesn't conform to the formula and then yeah that either becomes like a kind of like a like kind of a shooting star like a, a kind of kind of really unique thing that gets into the mainstream or it doesn't because it's underground and then that's just where the following is going to follow the underground thing as well you know that they can have their own following and it's not on the radio because like it, it, how does that how does that sound as the way that you would see that it's it's kind of set up at the minute yeah i think so i i you know i i I'm really lucky in that I get to talk to students about this as well. It's not just the stuff that I do. And I, and I get to talk to people who are in the middle of it through the podcast. So I'm kind of getting it from every angle, you know, what, what, and I think, it, I think what it boils down to sometimes is what people want themselves. You know, that somebody might want to be Ed Sheeran and Ed Sheeran is probably a good example of, or maybe in an Irish context, you know, Gavin James and Gavin James is at that really high level in Ireland. And then at the other end of the scale, there's Jinx Lennon. Both of them are one person with a guitar, but Jinx Lennon gets to do exactly whatever Jinx Lennon wants to do and gets to say exactly whatever Jinx Lennon wants to say. Gavin James doesn't have that luxury anymore mm. because um, it, it, the thing is, if if somebody invests money or if somebody gives you, say, say, say with the gym, right? So if somebody went down to you in the gym and said, here's 20 grand for the gym, they then have a stake in the gym and they can they can tell you, do you know what? I'd prefer to see this done. And you kind of have to do that a little bit because they just gave you 20 grand. Whereas if nobody gives you money to do anything in the gym, you can do whatever you want to do in the gym and run it whatever way you want because you're not beholden to anybody. And yeah. the more people you're beholden to, the, the more your decisions are influenced. So sorry, I'm back to your, you know, your idea of that three tier system. I think it's probably two tier and that third, that, there's one in the middle there where people are kind of nearly one way or nearly the other way. And 
I don't know about you, but the people that I kind of gravitate towards the most are the people who are underground and near that underground level. And when I mentioned Jinx Lennon, I think he's a fucking hero. He's, you know, one of the only people actually telling the truth in the country. And I, he's he's amazing. He's an amazing character. What he does with the music and his lyrics are absolutely amazing as well. Um, I wouldn't be that gone on Gavin James. He's a lovely fella, but I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be going to. I I don't buy tickets to go to his gigs. I do buy tickets to go and see Jinx Lennon. Yeah, yeah that thing you were saying there about uh, being kind of beholden to someone who is kind of becomes a stakeholder if if they have invested in it or whatever. It's funny because I was just um, re- I recorded another chat this morning with um, my mate Eo Corcoran, and we were talking about that. We were talking about it in the context of, uh, I guess the. The how the, the the nationalist community and and specifically the Irish language speaking community in West Belfast has developed over the last thirty or forty years, where they kind of all acted in accordance to this sort of uh, it was like a motto or uh, whatever it was. Na habere jane, don't say it, just do it. And there's been a, a few people who have spoke to Seamus McShane on the podcast, and I spoke to. Um, Father Des Wilson, who's passed away now as well, and they both are both like stalwarts of kind of the community in West Belfast, and always kind of had that thing where like if it needs to be done, like you do it, and that's that. And I think that there's a there's a a great independence comes along with that. Like that's the place where the gym that we set up in Palestine is in the Laji Centre, and they're they're like as well fiercely independent in terms of who they take funding from so that they can do whatever they want and even with the gym in Cork I know if we had there's been plenty of times where, where we've kind of stood by what we feel we're about and it doesn't make any business sense and if it was all about making a profit and making business then somebody would be like don't be doing that don't put that on your social media like you're obviously going to wind people up there like if you put that out there or whatever but then that's what you're about so you just you just do it and that's it which kind of like was a question I was going to ask you. Anyway, brings me along to it nicely. Um, like, it's not hard to ask this the right way, but like I've been, I've gone, say I must have been in to about, at this rate, six or seven of the King Kong, or maybe even more over the last few years, whatever gigs. Um, and I always like, I always have this like a really big anticipation going into it because half the time you don't even know what's going to happen. And then, Half the time we don't even know what's going <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then I always come away from it, like obviously buzzing the bits, but then I'm like, what 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 even is that? Like where does it come from? How do you come up with ideas? Like like I know this is like I don't know, even this sound like a like a daft question, but what is King Kong Company? Like is that it would be unfair know. to say know. that it's a band. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a band. And I like I get surprised when people say, you know, I read things or something, they say, oh, dance band, King Kong Company. And I go, I didn't know I was in a dance band. I just thought I was in a band because all like all like since, I don't know, since I'm 13, I suppose, 14, I've been in bands playing drums, playing trombone, singing. And it would have been rock bands like playing Iron Maiden covers. And then I was in a ska band for years. And everybody in that band has different influences and we all play different types of music and we're all interested in different types of music but I think what brings us together in that band and has done for a while is that when we like we've been in the rehearsal space since January and what we're trying to do is get a live gig ready that's what we do 
and everything that we do, we're trying to figure out, will that work for the audience? What's the audience? What What's the audience going to enjoy most that we can do? How can we enjoy ourselves and have a fucking deadly time and try and make sure that everybody who's at the gig absolutely has, a, has the best time that we can possibly give them as well? And everything that we do is aimed towards that. You know, and probably to our detriment sometimes, like we work on material and we have done for the last few years and some songs that we really like, you know, there could be some really good songs. And then it comes to this time of year and we look at it and we kind of go, not fast enough. That doesn't have enough kick, not funny enough. You know, that won't work and that'll bring the festival set down. So what we do then is we park that and we move on and we're always trying to focus on what will work best in that context and always trying to do that. And we kind of know, you know, I suppose because we go to festivals and we're part of that audience, we're kind of making that for as if it was ourselves that we're watching it in a way. And it's not like we're not trying to get in the like we don't get played on the radio a lot for obvious reasons, but that's not what we're trying to do. It's got, I kind of mentioned it earlier on. We've we have a very clear idea of what it is that we want to do. And what we want to do is try and provide the best gig that we possibly can and give people the best experience and have you know, have a bit of a laugh and have a bit of a dance and enjoy ourselves. That's what that's what we try and do. That's the focus. I, um, <clears throat> actually, I remember the gig in um, electric. The first gig on the Sunday of Electric Picnic last year was like three o'clock in the day, and wow, it was it was too early for everybody to be out of their minds. But you would have thought everybody was out of their minds, but they weren't. They were just having a really good time, which was class. Yeah. Um, the how many how many are, are in the band? Is six or seven? Well. We is that we have a collective we call it, and because like there's the there's five of us playing instruments on stage. Then there's Trish Boxhead dancing. Then we have uh, Andy who does our sound. He he's part of the band. He's part of the King Kong Company collective. So when we're making decisions, you know, Andy is in on that as well. Then we have Luke who Luke does our social media stuff and. He's been involved in that for, Jesus, I don't know, more than 10 years now since we've been in different incarnations of this band. So those in that, there's eight of us as the collective King Kong Company. But then there's stress on lights as well. And stress is pretty much part of the band as well. He's with us. All in all, when we're on the road, there's about 12 of us. And we were looking to expand that this year with a we were chatting to people about doing visuals, different entities about doing that. So looking to bring on one or two more people and another couple of crew as well. So it was going to be up around 14, 15 this summer on the road. That's what it was looking like. And is it, is it possible to give uh, Kevin an idea of the dynamic that goes with that in terms of the decision making and what direction the, the group go in? Oh, sure. It's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, it's very hard to find a consensus sometimes, but maybe that's part like, you know, if you change that dynamic, it wouldn't be what it is because it's all over the place. Like, you know, that it's it's not exactly musically wonderful. It's not that pleasing to the ears. We're never going to get a gig in the National Concert Hall, you know, and that's not what it's about either. It's 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 about something else, the visual part of it, the energy part of it, the sound and the beats. And if if you change that dynamic and even though it can there can be friction at times, it wouldn't be what it is. You know, that's part that's part of what it is. It's like a family, you know, mm. that it, if if you're getting a family, if you if you said to your whole family tomorrow, you know, what we have for dinner, 
everybody's going to have a different idea of what they'd like to have for dinner. And you have to try and come to some consensus. And there's probably going to be somebody at the table who's going to go, I didn't fucking want to eat this for <laughs> fuck's sake. Do I have to eat this now? And you're going, yeah, you'll eat it. And afterwards, they'll probably say, ah, fair play, that was a really nice dinner. You know? So <laughs> it's that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a big a big WhatsApp group that just fucking messages flying all day long in them? Ah, stop. The stupidity <laughs> of that WhatsApp group now for the last, since we've been in isolation, it's just ridiculous videos for the last few weeks. Nothing to do with the band at all. Just ridiculous videos of very funny things like, um, and some of them from online, but even just a couple of days ago, I posted a video. I think we were, I can't remember even where we were playing. I think it was in County Clare somewhere. And uh, it's a video of Boxhead in the fridge that, you know, Boxhead took everything out of the fridge and just got into the fridge for the crack. And the video was somebody, I, you know, we said, someone go up to the fridge and get me a can, will you? And they opened the fridge and Trish jumped out of the fridge. <laughs> at them. Yeah, that's kind of what our ads group, uh, the, what group was about. The, the, chore- the choreo- choreography and the theatrical side of things is like a really important part of the gigs as well. Um, yeah. So w- where does that come from? Well, the choreography is all Trish, Boxhead. You know, Trish is a, a, a trained dancer. That's what that's what she's done. And she, she teaches dance as well, but um but is part of the collective and you know, we know her from from outside of that. And then the theatrical stuff, the props and all that stuff, we all pitch into that. I think for for the first time this year we were talking about because um we have a very big gig coming up towards the end of the summer if it's still gonna happen. And we were looking at going to somebody else for visuals, whereas Ailey uh, did them last year, the guitar player. And before that, Lofty was doing them. So, you know, the, that we usually make those decisions ourselves. So as well as playing music, we're kind of going, you know, what we wear, what we put on our heads. And then we're talking to Trish. Trish will have ideas. And <laughs> we, then we'll have ideas like, you know, there was one gig we had in Dublin. And oh, fuck it. Like, it was so close. We got a Zorb. And Trish Boxhead was going to get in the Zorb <laughs> and go out over the crowd. And it got like, I had the Zorb inflated in the venue, right? We had it. We'd rented this fucking thing, right? And we had it. And this was an idea that is my fault. I came up with it. And Trish was kind of going, oh, Mark, I don't know, man. I fuck it. That, like, I could hurt myself or hurt somebody else. And I said, no, it'd be fucking brilliant. Get in the Zorb and we'll throw you out into the crowd. Right? <laughs> And in fairness to poor Trish, we do, like, man, she puts ourselves in some awful position sometimes. But it came to the gig time then. and was kind of, the Zorb was there and the venue was sold out. We said, right, are you up for it? And she went, I don't know. And then the manager of the venue came in and said, look, I'm not sure about health and safety. I'm going to leave it up to you guys and it's your responsibility. And if anything happens, if there's a claim, you're going to have to feel it. And kind of that deflated the Zorb. We never got to do the Zorb. <laughs> so, and there's loads of those things, you know, like, Putting Trish on stilts for Electric Picnic last year was good crack as well. Yeah. Uh, but she's she's fairly game for stuff like that. But my God, she puts herself at risk. Yeah. You know? The um, I don't even know what to call it. The it was like a sacrificial ceremony at the start of the gig. Uh, the daytime gig in EP with the big yeah. the big crosses and all. That was I came in just because I actually um, <clears throat> one of my friends Lewis was doing a a set in the spoken word tent. And he asked me would I come and do 10 minutes of it with him. So I did that and then legged it across to your gig straight away afterwards. It was around three o'clock and, and uh, came in and just like the music and the lights and all. It was it was very theatrical and fucking really unexpected actually when I walked into it. It's class. Um, tell me this here. I was going to ask you next was, um, well, 
Well, I'll tell you about that, right? Just before you finish up on that, like those gigs at Electric Picnic, and it's kind of it put in my mind, you know, that that fractious nature of what we have sometimes. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, three years ago now, actually three years ago, we had a Sunday gig at Electric Picnic starting at half three, and Waterford were in the All Ireland hurling final, and I'd been at every Waterford Championship game that year, so when Waterford won the semi-final and they were playing Galway in Croke Park on that Sunday, the same time we had the gig, two weeks before the gig, I got in touch with the lads and said, lads, I'm not going to be able to do the gig at Electric Picnic because Waterford are in the All-Ireland and didn't go down well at all, at all. Didn't go down well. So there was calls made to the bookers. And we have a manager and a booking agent as well added to those numbers that I mentioned earlier on. And, you know, they were trying to shift the gig, but there was no shift in the gig. And I was kind of adamant because the lads don't go to matches. And I was trying to explain to him, look, this isn't just a hurling match. It's not like watching a premiership game in the pub. <laughs> like I bring me mother to these matches and I have done for a lot of years now. And it's deeper than just a match. You know, this is about family and this is about connection. This isn't just a sport. You know, they, they would say, it's just a hurling match. Can you not miss it? I kind of go, no. Waterford haven't been in. Do you not understand how long it's been since Waterford have had a chance? Like, and I was there in 2008 when we got bet out the gate by Kilkenny with me mother as well. You know, and this looked like a shot at redemption. But in the heel of the hunt, anyway, I wasn't able to go to the All Ireland hurling final. That and that I had to play the gig, and I wasn't happy about that at all, at all, at all. But before I went on stage, lofty who was in the band and Lofty was doing visuals and camera work at the time. Lofty came up to me and said, I have something for you. And Lofty handed me a Waterford jersey that the whole Waterford team had signed oh. before I went on. And I go, ah, for fuck's sake. Sure, I was an emotional wreck. Oh, yeah. And then, yeah, as soon as the gig finished, it finished at half time and we got a generator and I had two televisions in my van waiting to go on at a bicycle at the back of the stage so the lads broke down the gear for me and I just legged it on the bike and caught the second half and uh, my partner Ellie was down there and sure I got hammered like uh, we got again we got bed out the gate again and I oh, sure I was an emotional wreck I think about six o'clock I was bawling and I went back to bed for a while <laughs> at electric picnic I got up a few hours later though and I was in good form again but yeah not, not an easy afternoon that one <laughs> just actually on the subject of that electric picnic last year the the Sunday the, the nighttime gig um, in the Body and Soul stage last year was like as far as festivals go and, and festival experiences like that was on another level like the, but the, so many people trying to get into it and like the vibe that was there and the the whole gig was class whatever it's just what you were doing on stage and the, the the sort of like energy that was in the air and everything like that there and the Body and Soul area is not going to be there now next year this year even yeah yeah we knew that in advance we weren't allowed to say it that the, those talks we got a fo- we weren't going to play Electric Picnic at all last year. That we had said, look, we've played it, I think it's six years in a row at that stage, or five years or six years in a row. And in the run up to it, we were kind of saying maybe we should give it a break. You know, we'll play other festivals like we were playing all together now. And we said, look, maybe we'll do that one, and we won't do Electric Picnic. And I think it was around February or March we got a phone call and. The, rela- the relationship we have with Body and Soul is kind of a special one. That that stage, the Body and Soul stage at Electric Picnic is kind of, it was where we got our, we played other festivals, but we played really small stages and it hadn't gone that well. But that stage, they gave us a really good slot on a Sunday evening. And this is about, this is six, six years ago, I think. And it was brilliant. The gig was fantastic. Loads of people turned up 
And it was as a result of that gig, that Body and Soul stage at Electric Picnic, that we started to get bigger and better gigs. That's the thing that kind of built momentum for us. And the Body and Soul crew have always looked after us really well. Like the first main stage gig that we got was the main stage of Body and Soul. You know, they gave us the main stage gig. This year, hopefully, like just touching wood, it goes ahead. We're headlining the main stage of Body and Soul on the Friday night. We're meant to this summer. You know, and that's massive for us. And they always looked after us. So they rang us and... What was said was, look, this might be the last time that Body and Soul has ever had Electric Picnic. And we had decided we weren't going to do Electric Picnic. But when they said that, we said, oh, yeah, fuck it. Like, how could we not? If that ends up being the case, how could we not do it? And because we were going to be there anyway, we did the the daytime gig. And, that, you know, the the Electric Arena is a bigger stage, but there was something, you know, you're right. There's something about that Body and Soul gig. And I think it's what Body and Soul bring to that. It's not, you know, it's kind of the way they do what they do that it feels like you're part of a community it doesn't feel like they're just about you know obviously they are about money they have to make money but it doesn't feel like that's the driving motivation behind it and that gig and the sunday night knowing that it might be the last gig because they hadn't decided they were still in talks with electric picnic at that stage but the feeling was that it was probably going to be the last body and soul gig at electric picnic and being asked to do that gig late on the sunday night it was that that was kind of an honor and very special in and of itself and then jesus christ the way the gig went off Mm. was just off the fucking charts man it was just it was bananas you know and we all left the stage kind of going what the fuck was that you know it was (laughs) absolutely amazing and what's brilliant is that at the front of that stage, you know, like I was fist pumping people. They were all there was a lot of friends there. I was in the front row. Of, I was in the front row of that game. Yeah. Like I came in late. Like I don't know if you knew there was thousands of people outside who couldn't get into it. Like thousands of people that were trying to get into the gig. We we had the access passes, so we got which walked straight up to the top and they let us in. Fortunately enough, and then managed to squeeze up to the top. But it was just it was like it was electric. Like I kind of feel like the, the last few years I've been in the in the body and soul area. It's kind of like has been the it has been like the the beating heart of electric picnic in many ways like um I think yeah that like, like, I'll, I'll get it i'll get into trouble for this and if people hear because i've gotten given out already because you know we have a relationship with electric picnic and our manager works for mcd and they're aligned with festival republic and we've like we've been given out to for saying we really love body and soul and you know kind of electric picnic and say well why aren't you promoting the electric picnic gigs as much and we do I can't change what I really like, you know, and we love body and soul. And it's, you know, I, I've never met Melvin Ben, the fellow who organizes Electric Picnic, but Avril Sandy from body and soul after we played a gig there came up and gave me a hug. You know, there's a, there's a relationship that we know those people. And the, the thing about that, that body and soul gig was it felt like we were with family and friends. And I think that's what they do very well. It feels, it feels like you're, it, it feels like our tribe. And when you're playing in that, it's not just the people who are backstage and the people doing the lights. It's the crowd as well that it, you feel like you're part of one tribe. And that's an amazing yeah. feeling. And there's a, a friend of ours from Belfast, Aaron, and Aaron works on Sunflower Fest. But Aaron was down at, he was down at Electric Picnic and he was doing security in the body and soul area. And I met him afterwards and he was saying, you fucking cunts. He said, <laughs> he said it was like Lord, it was like Lord of the Rings up there. Yep. He said they were coming in over the fence, under the caravans, <laughs> he said. And we were trying to keep him out. He said it was like the arc scene in Lord of the Rings when they came down. That is I what mean, it was, I was like. Going, yeah. yeah. And I was saying to him, deadly. And he said, no, it wasn't deadly. <laughs> that was not fun. And he was kind of, we had a good laugh about it. And then, you know? actually now, just for, seeing as you mentioned it, but like Dahi closed that stage the year previous, I reckon. Yeah. 
didn't he? That was another thing. Yeah, yeah. I remember just looking around yeah. and just like seeing like every, loads of people that you knew and even the structure of it. My like the hairs in my arms, my legs are standing up now. I don't know if it's because of the body and soul section or just because it just like I hope the festivals go ahead this year. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the thing with Dahi as well is that Dahi has kind of worked his way up with body and soul as well. You know, that body and soul would have given Dahi a gig probably on one of the smaller stages because I remember talking to the, the booker, Jenny Rain. And she loves working with Dahi because they've been working with Dahi for six or seven years as well. The same of, same as us, giving, giving us smaller gigs and smaller stages and not just watching us try and, you know, make that, that, that move onto bigger stages. But it's because of them. They bring us along, you know, that they're part of that. They're, they're the people who have helped us mm. make, make that the, 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 the move onto those bigger stages. Yeah. Um, here, a question that I was going to ask you was, tell me what the crack is with the commotion lotion. Where did that... Where did that come from? Uh, oh yeah, this is this is this is a good story actually. Yeah, I I love Buckfast, and I find that Buckfast for me, I I find it hard to go on stage without Buckfast, and it's the caffeine part of it and the alcohol part of it. It's like it's kind of like a crutch for me, and I I've always gone on stage with it, and it's something. It's on you know it's on our rider that when we go to a gig now that we get riders before we'd have to bring ourselves but it's great now that and it's, it's like we went and did a gig in the Czech Republic and there was a bottle of Buckfast waiting for us in the dressing room <laughs> going, yes boy so Buckfast has been part of our story and I I was raised you know my grandfather had a saying the silent priest never got his parish and I'm not afraid of asking for things because the worst people can say is no or not 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 respond to you at all so. Um, this must be three years ago, I think. I wrote, I sent an email to the the representatives of the Buckfast company in UK. And I told them who we were and I told them the profile of the gigs that we were doing. And I said, was, was would there be any way that we could set up some kind of a relationship between Buckfast and King Kong Company? And your man said, oh, I, I'm not sure about that. And I, I, I they did they did it in the UK. There was a band, I can't remember the name of the band, but they're kind of an electro band as well, a Scottish electro band. And they did Buckfast did sponsor kind of sponsored them. That they there was some relationship there. And I mentioned that to him. I said, Look, you've done this before with a band in the UK. And he said, Yeah, there was something there. He said, Look, what's gonna have to happen is he said, if you write me a more detailed email about what you have in mind, we'll bring it to the monks and we'll discuss it with them. And I went, fair enough. So I, I, I wrote this email. And in my head, I was just I was just stoked that there was a lot of monks <laughs> sitting around the table in Buckfast. And Buckfast isn't it's not owned by the monks any, anymore. It's owned by a company, a company called Chandler's. They're, they're responsible for it. But the monks still have some input into it that it's still they still take money from it and it's still associated with them. But Chandler's are the they're the distillery that make it. It's not made in the Abbey anymore but the monks still have a say in what it's associated with. So at some point at a meeting with a load of monks around the table, they were talking about King Kong Company. And if our band never did anything else in its life, I'm just pretty happy about that. So anyway, our man came back to me after they had this meeting and they decided no was the answer to that, right? So they 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 said no, but he sent me this like a pack with pens and USB keys. He sent me a load of Buckfast merch and he said, Thanks for your email. Thanks for the interest, but we're not going to be able to do that at this time. So that's ah, fair enough. And then um, there's a brewery down in Wexford, um, Yellow Belly Beer. And there's a, a, one of the lads in particular that we're very friendly with from down there. And I got the idea that, you know, 
well, Jesus, if they're not going to do something with us, maybe we could do something ourselves. So I went down to the Yellow Belly Beer Lads and I said, look, I have this idea. Could we make a beer with Buckfast in it? You know, that would be particularly suitable for festivals. And they said, yeah, absolutely. That's a brilliant idea. Let's do it. So we did it and we agreed, like, we made more money from that Buckfast beer than we did from our first album. And that's a fact. Like, we lost money on the album. We made money on the beer. And it got written about in the Irish Times. It got coverage around Europe as well. Like, loads of people wrote about this Buckfast beer being made by a microbrewery in the, the southeast of Ireland. And I got an email from the fella from Buckfast. And he he uh, he copied and pasted a bit of an article about the Buckfast beer and King Kong Company. And it was only one sentence in the email. He said, are you fucking serious? <laughs> and, I a, and I didn't respond to it. I thought he was going to bring us to court. I thought like, because we didn't have Buckfast on the label, but it was called commotion lotion. And in all the press releases, we said there was Buckfast in it, but it wasn't on the label. And I think they were probably thinking about bringing us to court. I don't know. But that, that, that one sentence email was the last <laughs> I heard from that fella. And that was the story of it. Yeah. And it sold out really, really quickly. It was, was it nice? I don't think, look, Buckfast isn't nice. There's not a nice taste of it, but the Buckfast beer was funny and we drank a lot of it. And, you know, you don't drink Buckfast because it's nice. You bring it, you drink it for, for the effect of the yeah. book. <laughs> Do you know what it is? I think it's kind of, it's kind of what you were talking about there. That wasn't a good business decision. Do you know what that was? That was fun. And that was messing. And yeah, messing and having a bit of fun while not being the best business people is kind of a good idea too, I think. Is it still available somewhere or is it all gone no all gone once off yeah we might do it again sometime but once off but yeah, yeah that w- that was a lot of fun yeah and the thing about it was it was you know from you know be like let's be honest about this and look at it from a business perspective as well it was a great promotional tool for us mm. you know we got written about in places that would never write about our band in a month of sundays you know that they 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 saw this thing and it was something that they could talk about and something that they could cover so you know, not we, we made a few bob out of it, but we got a lot of coverage out of it as well. And it was great because I remember at Body and Soul that year, um, there was one of the bars at Body and Soul stocked it. So I was like arriving in a van, carried down four slabs of the commotion lotion down to the bar, went down the next day and they said, yep, sold out, all oh, gone. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Like, you see, it, it seems like, which is kind of like a, a, I don't know, is it like a kind of a bit of ironic or a paradox or something, but even just like f- from just, um, being with um around with, with the kneecap lads the last couple of years and all the publicity that they're after getting, they've never done anything on purpose for publicity. They're just doing what comes out. It just comes out and then just so happens that it ends up on the front page of the newspaper or like uh in kind of like uh ends up on RTE radio on the six foot news or something like that there, you know? But it's never been it's never been about sitting down and thinking how are we going to get into the newspaper or how are we going to get people to talk about us it's just like they're just doing it's just like a natural reflection of what of what what's inside themselves you know what i mean what they feel is the, yeah. the, what what they want to do and then i guess that's like a, a kind of maybe that kind of goes back to that thing that you were saying about like being more attracted to the more underground groups and well, artists because that's what they're doing they're not doing it to get the publicity they're doing it because that's what they're about and yeah, I think I, th- I really think there's something in that because, um, and I'm not drawing a parallel. Here. No, I won't. Will I draw? No, I won't draw a parallel. I'll just talk about kneecap because I, the first time I saw kneecap was, I think it's three years ago now in the Bulmers tent at Body and Soul. That was the first time I saw him. I was in the afternoon and they blew the head off me. I was going, 
this is absolutely amazing. It's brilliant. And then I went to see them up in the Aris Nguail tent at Electric Picnic. That was, that's only two years ago, I think. They were on late in the night. That's right. And it was on. It got keep, keep, kept getting delayed. It kept getting that. moved on. Yeah, yeah. And myself, myself and Ellie went back three times, I think, and we eventually saw it. And then to see the lads going from doing that gig in that tent and getting messed around with the time slot to seeing them down in the Terminus tent this year at Electric Picnic, it's brilliant to see that. And I think that as well, if if the lads, and you can tell me this, this is a question for you, you know, if the lads were doing that stuff kind of pre, in a premeditated way just for publicity, if they're trying to piss people off just for publicity, that'd be transparent. People would see through that. But, you know, from watching the lads and getting to talk to them and knowing them, they mean what they say. They're not, it's not an act. You know, they're not pretending. When they get up on stage, they're not pretending to be something that they're not, that, that they're not. They mean that stuff. And even though it's tongue in cheek and some of it is funny and it's very cheeky, they mean it. Whereas there are some other acts that might do stuff like that in a premeditated way that aren't what they say they are, that are pretending to be something else. And even if people don't know that they see through that, I think on some kind of, you know, some even subconscious level, people know when it's fake, when people are, 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 are do you, is, is, do you think that that might be the case? With yes. The lads? So that's why that works. This might be a very idealistic way of, of, uh, putting this forward, but it is kind of the way that I, that I think about it. I think that, um, like when the lads are on stage, there's no filter. Like, it's not like, it's not like they've put loads of screens in front of themselves to give themselves an image or to become, uh, sort of like, fake versions of like a made up character even Let, let's let's say let's say the word versatile will we because that's, <laughs> that's, 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 what, that's what we're talking about <laughs> that's what i was skirting around yeah. you know and we might as well put it out there you know i mean like obviously i've known i've known Nisha since he was born and <laughs> like and i should hope so yeah, like the, the stuff the way that they are it's the way that they are it's, that's just the way the place that we this you know like I reckon that when I think about how they've developed over the last couple of years and I, at, at a gig, when I, like, I remember I was at the gig in the, in the Olympia or whatever during the year and, or the, the Academy or the Olympia, whichever one it was. And I was looking out, I was up on a balcony looking out and I was like, you know, like, I was like, that was the moment I kind of thought, I think the kneecap following, it's loads of people who are from a really similar place to where they're coming from who are in the crowd who are like that's me that's me on stage like that could be me or that's exactly what what it's like it was like for me as well what they're talking about and then there's other people who think it's really cool that that's what they're like and i just think that when people see something really real and that's something that i talked about or a few a few episodes ago in 61 i think i was chatting with uh, my Sadaw from the band Dam, their Palestinian hip hop band, who've got a very similar pathway in terms of where they came from and what was there before them and what they created and what came after them as Kneecap have at the minute, but they're just way ahead of Kneecap in terms of years. Like they started in the uh, late 90s or something like that. And that conversation that we had was that when you see something that's real, whether you know it or not, exactly what you said, there's something inside your soul that connects with it because you know that it's real and it's not fake. And I think that that's what, that what, that's what their lads are doing. The kneecap lads are doing. Like when I think about the, the, the main sort of like headline things that 
that have got them publicity in the last while, which the poster with Arlene Foster strapped onto a rocket for the Farewell to the Union tour. Think about that. Like the Farewell to the Union tour, they named that and and it was all, the, the date, it happened around the same week as Brexit. And they didn't do it. The poster ended up on the front page of the Irish News and it was just the poster for the tour. And they called the tour that because that's what they thought would be a good name for it. You know, it wasn't like a political, a political stunt or anything, but then just coincided with, what was happening politically and that's how then it got so much publicity the thing with like the time whenever they ended up on the news for getting the get your brits out chant on the go in the empire in belfast and that wasn't premeditated either it wasn't like that we're going to start this chant because there was a couple of royal people from the royal family here yesterday like that happens at every gig it just so happens that the royals were the other day before and then it got picked up on the bbc news and just things like that just like have kept happening but and i think that that's that's why it resonates with people is because people know it's real. If that, if that kind of like answers the question in a little bit. Yeah, I think it is. I think part of it as well is that, you know, people just want to have a bit of fun as well. And you can have, you can have a serious message, but you can do it in a tongue in cheek way and you can have a laugh while you're doing it. I think people respond really well to that. Like, you know, there's a place for Hosier and there's a place for Lisa Hannigan and there's a place for Katie Kim and there's a place for, you know, O Emperor and it's really good music. And that's a different thing. You know, that's musically, it's wonderful. But there's also a place for people going out and, you know, saying things that maybe will rub some people up the wrong way and sticking their two fingers up at some parts of the establishment. And people respond really well to that because it's a release, you know, and people need a release really badly you know now more than ever i can't wait until we get out the other side of this because some of the gigs on the other side of this when you talk about that release it's yeah. going to be off the charts that you know? is what i was going to ask you about next just even just to to add one more thing into the kneecap thing i mean i know it'd be kind of important for me to say that I, like i'm already kind of talking about it and my own kind of opinion or my own kind of perspective on it or whatever and uh, whether the lads would kind of agree with that or not but um the thing about being real is kind of what you said. Being real doesn't mean that everything that you're singing about is verbatim true. It it just means that that's your real sense of humor, that you're not putting on a fake yeah. kind of persona. Do you, know, do you know what I think it is, Ian? And I, I'd be conscious of this. Like, as I said, I've been in bands, Jesus, you know, more of my life than I haven't been in bands now. And some bands we stopped. And part of the reason we stopped was I didn't believe what I was saying anymore or I didn't believe in what we were saying and it's not it's what you're kind of talking about there it's not that's not just about the facts that are in what you're saying it's not that you don't believe the facts you don't believe in the message or what it stands for what that stuff stands for and there's so many bands that I go and see and you're looking at them like I went I was up at Galway Arts Festival a couple of years ago and the undertones were singing teenage kicks I was going them lads are in their 60s now aren't they and they're singing about teenage kicks you could get arrested for that. Like, that's not right. Do you know what I mean? And they can't sell that anymore. I don't believe him when he's singing about teenage kicks anymore. And if it, the bands that I respond, it's like what I was saying about Jinx Lennon and, you know, TPM and those, I respond well to bands that when they're telling me something, even if it's something funny and something that isn't true, that they believe in what that means and what it stands for, you know, that they believe in that. Like I've had this conversation a few times with friends of mine who are in the, in the music industry as well. And I think like, and I, what you said there is basically exactly what I was saying. I was like, I f love to follow people that I believe in because it just does something. It just like, 
there's just some sort of like electricity there or something that's really genuine that that's what that's what just like kind of inspires me to follow the 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 musicians or the artists or whatever that I follow and then on the other side of that conversation the people that we're talking to a couple of times have said I mean I suppose there if you look at some of the music that is um you know it's made to the formula it's made to fit a certain uh whatever formula for the radio say for example and then there's artists there that obviously get millions of followers as well so there there must be a place for that or because people oh, absolutely follow, there is like, yeah it's kind of like, yeah, there, there like vanilla or something i don't know if that's the right well, word to say it's like it's like coca-cola it's a very popular product you know and it, millions of people buy it and that's fine you know like i i drink it myself the odd time <laughs> but that that's because everyone has different tastes you know and it's just my taste i'm not saying it's right i ask students about this and it's some of the best classes we ever we ever have we talk about what 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 is music first of all can you define it and then what's it for and what we tried to do was break down the, take the subjectivity out of that. You know, it's, you know, it is something not music because you don't like it and you don't think it is. Like what, and one of the, you know, we talk about one of the composers, John Cage, who wrote that piece that's just silence. And he was, is that music? You know, is that defined as music? And as far as John Cage is concerned, it is music. And as far as some people are concerned, that is music. And there's a lot of subjectivity in that. But for me, the stuff that I respond to is stuff that I think is real. And maybe sometimes I'm being conned. You know, that, that could be it yeah. as well. You know, I could be getting conned sometimes. It's just that I think it's real. Like, and even to the point where that's uncomfortable. I, know I've, I don't know how many times I've seen postponed Podge now. I'd say about a dozen at this stage, probably more. And it was up on recently. I didn't enjoy the gigs. I, didn't, I wasn't comfortable at the gigs because he believes so much in what he's saying that I felt he was putting himself at risk that every time I was watching him on stage, I was kind of going, Oh man, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this because there was so much honesty and he was opening himself up so much. I was kind of going, I find that really uncomfortable. And I, you know, I'd be, I'd be nearly itchy watching him kind of going, Oh man, oh, I, I don't know about that. And then I saw him, the last gig I saw was down in Cork a few months ago. He was down in the Kino and, there was a bit more confidence about it. It was the same thing. He was singing the same stuff, but, but I don't know what, there was a little bit of a shift there or something. I got, oh, thank God. I felt, I just felt a bit more comfortable, but so honest, like maybe kind of who would think of as well as Sinead O'Connor, too honest, you know, where, where it's too real that you give up so much of yourself that you leave yourself vulnerable for people who aren't careful with that to knock you down and yeah. to damage you when you do that. And that like, so there's there's there can be a fine line there, I suppose, and maybe that's down to individuals. But yeah, it's definitely subjective. And in a way, so I it's all that, subjective. Yeah, that that like um, that vulnerability, I suppose, is a part of like an artistic expression as well, where some people choose to like be completely vulnerable, like what you're talking about there, like when they're like yeah. honest, when they're just completely no filter or whatever. Um, I actually, whenever I was doing the podcast with Misa, we did it in Palestine in Ramallah and we were talking about basically about the same thing here that we were chatting about, about being real and stuff. And she said something which I, I guess, I mean, we were talking about, we're like, yeah, yeah, being real and it's, that's the way to go and blah, blah, blah. And then she also said, sometimes it can be very hard to be real. It can be very hard when you're performing and you're on stage because it, it, it can be a challenge, I guess, I know, to, to make a performance always be 100% real. Um, I don't think you have any business doing it if it's not. 
yeah, yeah. But that's just my opinion. That's yeah, just yeah. me, you yeah. know. And yeah. that's that's just what I think. I I, I think if you're not, do you know that you know the sport metaphor that you're probably familiar with? You know, they left everything on the pitch. Yeah. I I want to leave everything on the stage. If I'm going out doing a gig, I'm not holding that back. I don't. And if I do hold that something back, then I don't think I'm doing it right. Yeah, and I think actually, I think that that's what you were saying. I think like being real, you have to put the effort in to be real as well. Like you have to consciously do it as well. Like and put like fucking make it happen. Like and then just basically saying the same thing that, that you just said. Like I guess just in a different way. Um, that thing that you were saying about like asking the students about what music is. I just a, a lyric came into my head there. One of Lisa O'Neill's songs. She goes, uh, I can't remember the name of the song now, but she says, uh. They're playing what they call music in my ear. They're playing something that I don't want to hear. And when I listen to that song, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Is that like, yeah, listening to that kind of like. It's it's an interesting thing to think about because when we're talking about it, I send the students off, you know, like an exercise, go off and bring me back some definitions of what music is. And one of the ones that turns up every every so often is like, I think it's in the Collins Dictionary that it's beautiful and harmonious. You know, and I'm kind of going, ah, nine inch nails don't really, you yeah. know, doesn't really, you know, or. So, you, some yeah, other bands would like, like a techno say, gig is neither beautiful exactly, nor harmonious yes, nor harmonious but still music you know so it's it's interesting to see definitions of it in places where you think the definitions would be right that you'd actually challenge as well you know and it's it's good that it, it's great that people are thinking about that but at mm. the same time i'm always partial to i remember i used to play in a ska band for years and i loved that music jamaican ska and then that second wave of ska in the uk I remember Madness had a T-shirt years and years ago, and you still see it popping up every now and again. Fuck art, let's dance. You know, at the same time, it, there for me, and this is again is a subjective thing. I want to enjoy it as well. You know, I want there to be some some kind of enjoyment or some kind of pleasure in it, and often that can be having a laugh, being a bit, you know, disrespectful to to the the norms of society. And sticking your finger up or sticking two fingers up at that while enjoying yourself and while dancing, you know, that's kind of, that's what fires me anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, like through the stuff that you're doing, um, through the teaching and through King Kong and especially something that I've kind of felt, I guess, just from tuning into to your podcast is that the podcast and the guests and stuff that you have and the tone of the conversations, I think do you feel like it's become a really good, um, I guess, like barometer of the zeitgeist of the Irish music scene at the minute? And when it, you think about like what's happening now, it's like it's a critical time for for Irish music. And like, what's what's been the the big takeaways? I think like from the podcast episodes that you've done and the feeling that you have about the Irish music industry now in the last couple of years and also like what's going to happen after this, after this fucking thing kind of blows over. Um, yeah, I, I hear that a lot, you know, that the Irish music industry has never been as good and it's never been as important. I don't know if I, I don't know if I buy that, you know, because it's because we're in it now and we're invested in it now. We're always going to say that, you know, <laughs> that, 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 you know, that, that we, there's a, I, one of the things I find, and I think, this is something that I'd like to change if I could. There's a lot of, there are some artists that look towards themselves more rather than the wider community. And, you know, when, when there's talk about not enough Irish music gets played on our national broadcaster, for example, 
is that people saying they'd like to hear other Irish bands being played or is it them saying I'd like to hear myself being played? And we kind of have to differentiate between that. And I think there's massive power chatting about this recently. You know, if you if you look at if you look at Irish bands and even just take a handful of Irish bands and look at how many followers they have on their social media channels and the power that they have when they say something into a microphone. If you are able to get Irish artists to harness that power, there's a guy who tried it before and I'm going to interview him. He's on like I have a list. Probably you probably have one as well. I have a list of people who I want to interview, you know, and, and, and hopefully I'll get to all of them eventually. And there is a guy on it who tried to start something like that. But I think part of the reason that it didn't work, it's that thing I'm talking about, that some artists are more inward looking than they are outward looking, you know, kind of, well, how is that going to benefit me? Whereas to, for something like that to work, you kind of have to change the mindset a little bit and say, well, how is that going to benefit the whole? You know, how is that, how is that going to benefit artists in 10 years time? Or how is that going to benefit artists in five years time? Not necessarily how is it going to benefit me, but how is it going to change things down the road? And that's, that's not an easy thing for everyone to sign up to, you know, like especially, yeah. and you can understand it, especially with artists who are struggling as it is struggling to keep their head above water and struggling to do the thing that they want to do. Obviously they're going to try and, and, and shape things that will help keep them just, just going, you know, you know, that actually, so this, this opens up a whole other Quite, we could end up talking for about four or five hours here if you go down this route. But I just want it was something that came up in a, in a, in a previous chat that I had um, on the podcast. Well, I mean, it's kind of it's came up a couple of times, but it came up in the chat that I recorded earlier today with my mate E, who's a chef. Um, but we, you know, that thing, it, 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 there's really a balance to be struck between being sort of like focused on yourself individually and then also looking at the collective because obviously it's you know there's that thing about like you you raise like with your class not raise out of your class that kind of thing you know what i mean like where everyone kind of raises together is essential really because then it benefits everybody and potentially benefits the individual more in the long run when everyone yeah. raises together and has that voice and then do you know there's something which is the thing i was thinking about that would take a, a whole other podcast episode but you know that there is an element out there of like look after your own garden and i think it's a very right-wing kind of train of thought where um <clears throat> the where it kind of encourages people just to look after themselves, look after their, their their own whatever their own front garden, and forget about everybody else. And it's really like you can kind of trace that back to kind of Maggie Thatcher's policies in England and the way that she kind of privatized everything and broke down the unions and all that there, and made it yeah, so I, that people were more focused about themselves and forget about everyone else. I think it can be linked to affluence as well. We talked at the start of this about you know the reason I started going around to those festivals is because. I had this realization that I didn't want to shackle myself to the bank for 30 or 40 years with the mortgage. And it was at the height of the recession that that happened. And I was going, I was, I was visiting communities and it's kind of like the podcast again, like a, a kind of a, a positivity vampire. And the places where I was visiting time and time again were communities that were trying to do something to bring the community together and make the place where they lived a better place to be. That that was more often than not, the motivation for a town having a festival and even a small village, you know, trying to make and it's for each other, not to make money, but to make the place where they are a better place to be for themselves and for their community. And one of the things, one of the positive things that I, I, I witnessed firsthand happening as a result of the recession was that people had more time to do that stuff. 
And it wasn't just a case of people having more time that, you know, and I look back, I look back into this when it, when I was in the middle of that, that, you know, volunteerism dropped off during the boom. And I can't help but think that part of the reason for that is, is that people's time became more valuable. You know, people were getting paid more for doing things with their time. And I can't help but feel that it kind of crept in. Well, well, why would I give my time to this organization for nothing when I get paid X amount of money for working and I earn so much money working? Why why would I give my time away for nothing? Mm. Whereas when some people weren't working as much, their time became, they became more generous with their time. And yeah. I, I think it's that, gen, you know, it's that generosity, the the and, and not just altruism, I suppose, is the word, you know, that you're, you're giving of your time for for to to make something else better, you know, and that and sometimes that happens more when times are bad than when times are good, which seems odd, really. But this is the perfect the example. Is right now, like there, I mean, there's so yeah. many people working together, collaborating, doing the online gigs together, and it, it's class to see. Like, it's so good to see. Like even with the podcast, like I'm like everyone, obviously or sitting at home so everyone wants to do a podcast now like you know like there's people have more time on their hands and are more like the way that we're having a chat now like we're like two odd hours having a chat here like which is unbelievable thing the way that people are kind of making connections or whatever during this time i um, love i love talking shite all the time now, like, <laughs> yeah so do i <laughs> here um one thing that i, I just on that there you know i was at one festival last year uh it takes a village down in Traboggan, and the one thing that i kind of realized about that festival was it was nearly a festival for the artists because i just remember at nighttime just sitting around and everyone who performed at the festival went to each other's gigs and it's a small festival anyway and then at nighttime then all the all the performers were hanging out together i was just thinking it was class because everybody were collaborating and having the opportunities to have those conversations you know and see what people are doing and just being a more chilled environment where people just get to kind of like explore each other a little bit which i guess is a good breeding ground for that kind of thing that you're talking about yeah, I was at it myself last year. I was down there on the Saturday. Um, it's, a, it's a great thing. I know that Kilkenny Arts Festival a few years ago, they they did that. And they didn't they didn't publicize it that much. What they did was, you know, they had artists coming from all over the world. And they got the artists to come and stay in Kilkenny for two weeks around their gigs. Not just for their gigs, but around it. And what you got was different artists playing with other groups and you know, they're, they were working with each other during that period. And I think the same thing happened at Sounds from a Safe Harbour this year. I know I saw Junior Brother was making corrects down there. For with, sure. That's exactly, with, with, yeah, exactly. With, with, with other artists, you know, and stuff like that. That's great. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing is, first of all, it's great for the artists, right? Because you get to meet other people who do stuff similar to what you're doing and you get to, you know, you, you inspire each other and you kind of cross pollination of ideas and you go, wow, that's really amazing, you know, and you inspire each other. But I think the audience, without even knowing that, probably benefit from that then as well, because it's kind of like, like what we were talking about, body and soul. One of the things that made that gig amazing on the Sunday was that the artists become part of the community then, you know, that we're all we're all in this together. And I, I think that that benefits everybody because you get that feeling of you know I, I talked about being in the same tribe but it's that same thing you're being in the same community and when when you feel that bond of community communication gets a lot easier and 
you know, whatever the art form, it boils down to communication, really. And anything that helps that communication along and frees up that communication and helps the the thing that's being communicated go a bit deeper. That's that has to be that has to benefit everybody. So, yeah, the more of that stuff, the better. Like, I mean, we've been doing it for years and probably to our detriment, you know, we've been playing gigs in places we don't go home after gigs maybe one of these days we'll become a professional outfit and we'll do the gig and then we'll go home and we'll have a cup of cocoa and we'll be in bed by midnight we don't do that you, you know you had you had my brother and his mates on the missing list the next day after the gig in Clonmel last year yeah. yeah we did that was a great gig yeah, <laughs> it, it was brilliant to be able to do you know that and that there's that sense of community like that was a group of people coming together to put on an alternative to the the Eurovision when it was on in Israel you know and it was ourselves kneecap and uh andreas the stack was playing as well and it was ah geez it was great crack like you know it was a great night we we had fun doing that but that felt like people coming together and doing you know nobody went home after nobody did that gig got into a van and drove off home again we all hung around and you know we had a laugh and uh probably got up to mischief but that's part of it isn't it you know that's yeah. that's part of that thing that building that community and that you know it's it, one of the things that's being highlighted at the moment, and I'm not a massive fan of social media, and sometimes I'll turn it off, but when it's used socially, it can be a really wonderful tool. You know, when it's used as part of a community, it can be a great thing. Yeah, I think that's very important now, especially like it's been it's been a lifeline for me, really, just being able to keep in contact with people um, over the last couple of weeks. And just because you mentioned it there, you mentioned Sounds from Safe Harbour. I'm actually hoping to have Mary Hickson on the show there soon enough um but i just thought that was such a class thing because it, it just it, it was like a little a little family in cork coming together to make this festival down to the Cork making we had a storytelling night in, in the gym funny enough actually um susan o'neill was at it with claire sands and ronan was there as well doing your brother um and we stayed i said we did the storytelling night for a couple of hours and i said right look the storytelling night's officially is finished so you can go home if you want to but we had loads of drink left over from the, the big fundraiser that we had in the summer for the gym in palestine but i was like but there's like six or seven bottles of whiskey here so if anybody wants to stay obviously stay on and we stayed on having a laugh and susan's hair caught fire off one of the candles i heard about that and junior, right, brother, yeah. <laughs> junior brother put it out for her. but um the and it was that was um i'm trying to think there was that was that when you did the podcast with Claire? I think I think it was the week after the yeah. Cork pod, Podcast Festival. That's was on right. The following yeah, week. yeah, yeah. Because so. the, the, sorry, the other festival I was thinking of that that I felt very part like a, a kind of community vibe was the Quiet Lights Festival by John Pearson was running it. it was class in Cork as well. But that podcast that you did with Junior Brother, I think that was the moment I sit and listen to that. I think that last year was really a big year for me and albums was kind of the year of the album for me like when i think about like his album that came out in his class and the lancome album which is like a game changer really like in terms of various albums i think um and i just kind of really got into listening to albums in the same way that you would go to the movies and watch a movie you know from start to finish and you're like trying to like experience the feelings of the the flow of the album and everything like that there um so like we've definitely pumped out a few class pieces of work from the country in the last year haven't we like yeah, but I, I think I think that's always the case, you know. I, I think there's all like there's constantly people making incredible things everywhere in the country, and should we don't get to experience or hear or see or get the chance to be part of most of them, I'd say. <laughs> but all I think I think that's always the case, always the case, mm. and I in the same way I think that you know every county has something going for it. You know, there, there's reasons people live in places, and there's there's beautiful parts to the country. 
and there's people creating amazing things. I I hope, and I think that will always be the case, but I think it's certainly been the case in the past. Yeah, for sure. It, like, and, and actually, that kind of goes back to what you were saying about people logging on to the Mary Wallopers gig, being like, who the hell are these lads? And like, we think they're the absolute bee's knees because we're a part of that. We we know them and like we're following them and stuff like that there. But then there's so many people in the country who've never heard of them who are, if they did hear of them and if they did experience them, they would be like, holy shit. Now, that's kind of across the board, really, isn't it? Like if you, you like, uh, you only, you can only enjoy what you know exists, really. Yeah. And whatever appeals to you as well, you know, I mean, there, there's bands that I wouldn't go and see on the Sundays, but people love them and they have a wonderful experience watching them. And that doesn't detract from, from that experience. It's just, it's that thing again, it's very subjective, but yeah. it, it, the freedom to be able to, to go, first of all, to whatever gig you want and enjoy it is a wonderful thing. And then the freedom for those artists. And we're very lucky, and you, you've you experienced this for, firsthand when, when you've gone to Palestine, that there's so many places in the world where a lot of the people that we love and we go and watch and see, they wouldn't be able to say the things on stage that they say in some other countries. Yeah. And we're very lucky to be able to, first of all, to do that. And we're very, and then as, as a, and I'm an audience member as much as I'm part of a band as well. Very lucky to be able to go and experience that firsthand and watch those gigs and listen to people saying that stuff. Yeah. Here, what would you like to see happening as we hopefully sooner rather than later start to transition out of this uh, kind of isolation, period of isolation? Well, I know for a start that people's gardens are never going to be as amazing as they're going to be this <laughs> summer. And I'm speaking for myself here as well. Like I, I try and grow a bit of veg out the back. And uh, I mean, oh man, I've had tomato plants the last couple of years that are very neglected because I've gone to festivals and... You know, I, I get freed up in the summer where I don't I don't have as many demands on my time. So I can kind of go on the missing list every now and again. And the poor tomato plants were in rag order last year. I still get tomatoes off them. But like for the last week when I haven't been in the studio working on music or doing online classes or preparing stuff for college, I've been out the back garden and the kale is already up looking good. Loads of it. And I've more herbs now. I'd say I could open up a herb shop during the summer. <laughs> And I, I live down near the beach in Tremor, in County Waterford. And I know you're familiar with County Waterford. I was listening to your podcast when you were strolling across the Cumberland. Oh, that's right. Yep. But I got, there's a friend of mine gave me uh, an old bourbon cask, an oak barrel, like one of those big oak barrels. I seen it on your feed. Yeah, I'm going to make that into a smoker. And I like the, when the mackerel arrive in Tremor, I'm usually out in the kayak fishing for mackerel. So I'm going to be smoking them this summer. So that's... First of all, from a very personal level, that's one of the things that's going to happen when we do get out the other side of this. Loads of veg and smoked fish. That's one of the things that's <laughs> going to happen for me. Uh, but as a community, I think maybe, do you know what I'd like to see happening? And that's the question you asked me. Maybe we can kind of realize that we don't have to work as much as we think we have to work. Like one of the things you often talk to people about is how much is enough? You know, what What do I need just to, to be happy and to get by on. And sometimes I look at, there's a, I can't think of your man's name, Bill something, the, the businessman from Dublin. And I remember listening, he had car dealerships up in Dublin. I can't oh, think of the guy it. from The Apprentice. Bill Colin. Bill yeah, Colin, yeah, Bill, yeah. Bill Colin. And I, I, I don't know where, I think it was in a secondhand bookshop or something. I came across his biography. Is it Penny Apples? Apple. Yeah, 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 Penny yeah. Apples. Yeah. I said I'd buy it for the crack and read it. And I couldn't help but feel that he has some form of mental, mental illness, the poor man, <laughs> where he can't stop earning money. That and, and it was interesting reading that because his mother 
worked on Moore Street and sold apples out of a pram, and that's what it's based on. And I think that part of his upbringing damaged him in some way, that he has the drive to just earn and earn and earn as much money as he can possibly gather. And I, you know, I was just reading that kind of going, Jesus, man, like how much is enough? You know, when, when are you going to stop? And he's never going to stop. He's not able to stop. And I was, I was hoping then looking at this where, you know, I'm working from home, but uh, I'm, I'm still doing my work, but I can go down the beach for a walk in between the classes. And, you know, I can, I can prepare a class at 10 o'clock at night if I want to and be out in the garden during the day. And that's, that ability to mix up the work like that and maybe maybe give people a better quality of life as opposed to you know being able to earn more mm. and I, that's, th- I, i'd hope for something like that yeah i was thinking exactly the same thing and like now that we have the opportunity you know, a lot of people are spending more time with their family or reconnecting with themselves in a way that maybe like we wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to do and i think that that would be for me, like that would be a driving factor for me in terms of being able to maintain and keep on developing that connection with myself and other people on a deeper level. And the thing is that like, it's very hard to do that if you just fill your calendar up with being busy all the time with running from place to place. And, and as you say, like just kind of like just working nonstop. Um, and I think like, I'd love to, I'd love to think there's going to be a big positive kind of release of like festivities when, when this is over, you no know, people getting together and stuff. Ah, there is, there is, like, yeah, there definitely is. People are going to lose the plot, you know. <laughs> but it, yeah. and I, and I, I just did an interview for the podcast with Avril Stanley, who's the she's the boss woman of Body and Soul, and they're in kind of limbo at the moment where they haven't called off the festival because it's on the summer solstice, and the reason that they put it on the summer solstice was, you know, she was trying to tap into that idea of the celtic spirituality and go back to paganism that that summer solstice was a massive celebration and if things come back on track before that summer solstice like is there any festival or is there any celebration that's better positioned for that party to be for pagans whether you go to body and soul or not but that that festival of the the summer solstice that high summer you know on the the 21st of june That'll be some session. Like all you yeah. need is a bag of cans and a fire and the yeah. right people, and yeah. you're away. You know. And this 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 episode is is like a, um, propaganda for body and soul, but like it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but it's really good. Actually, it's not. I don't think it's my favorite festival. I I, I love Van Tastival. I love that one, and yeah. it's that thing again of like feeling like I'm with my tribe. And Electric Picnic is great. You know, there's great bands at it, but I feel it. It's the ones I feel at home at. Yeah. And I think Fantastival is in that bracket right. as well. You know? That um, meditation that they do at 12 o'clock on the, I think it's on the Sunday of the Body and Soul is class, like at the main stage where they just kind of like, everyone's just laying down, just being in a harmoniously meditating together. Um, not not for me now, I have to say, Ainla, I'm probably still, I might be, I've walked through it a couple of times I've, on my way to the van. I've done it. way back to the van, but. I've done it twice and it, both times I came away from it like I'm gonna fuck with it. I said I'm definitely gonna do meditation every single day from now on for the rest of my life after that because just lying there and it, like, I remember just lying there just massaging my face one day at it I was like oh yeah um <laughs> here the other thing no more. yeah um the other thing is um oh fuck here <laughs> the other thing is th- just 
I can't even say how much life doing the podcast has been giving me recently. Like, so like having these chats, like I'm actually going to go out for a walk now because I'm fucking buzzing after the chat that we've just had. <laughs> and uh, the one thing on a personal level for me it, after this, I fucking can't wait to give someone a hug. I swear to God, I need to, like the next person I hug is it's going to be next level. But um, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to have one in the back. Choose po- carefully. Yeah, Choose I know. Carefully. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, could, you could really scare them. I know. The right person, I know. Know. I'm going to keep one in the back pocket for the next time I see you as well. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Um, fuck, I don't know. I suppose that's probably as good a place as any to finish up with. Uh, Absolutely. A hug, of, a virtual hug. Yeah. yeah that's it. <laughs> oh, <I> <laughs> 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 to give the microphone up. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. That was yeah. good, man. Yeah, it was the best one I've got in a while anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, fuck here, Mark. Gotta meet my It's been class. Nobbery. Nobbery, man. Um, so let me see. Well, I suppose we'll see each other on the other side of this. I hope sooner Absolutely. rather than later and we'll fucking have a bit of crack. We will indeed. This is chapter two of Charles McGlinchey's book, The Last of the Name. The first chapter can be found at the end of the previous episode. Chapter two, The Home. I never remember any sod houses in my time. They were all built of stone and plastered with blue clay and lime. The people never bothered much about whitewashing. There wasn't much order on the houses then. The Cal Lanogak, the algae or the wall fungus, would be growing on the walls two or three feet up, nearly as far as the windowsill. The houses were roofed with bog fur and laths with scraths or sods put on top of that with the clay side down. Then the houses were thatched with rushes or straw. The outhouses were often thatched with fine heather or bent from the shore. The thatch was tied down with homemade sugans or straw ropes attached to the backhands or hooks stuck along the top of the walls below the, below the eaves. The chimney was just a rod creel with no bottom. The smoke went up along the gable wall and out the hole. But a lot of the smoke hung about the rafters and there was a smell of smoke of everything about the house. Later on, French hobs came in and a flue was built to carry up the smoke. All the old houses had a couple of holes built in the walls at the side of the fireplace. They were called pull clucke or bowls. They would hold a pipe or fur splits or things like that. There was always a kitchen bed in the old houses called an outshot and it was boarded off with a sliding door to get in and out. It had a roof too and you could throw things up there out of the way. This was the taster bed. My mother said there was no windows in the house she was reared in herself but the two outshot beds, one to each side of the fireplace. 
Her uncle took out one of the outshots and put in a window. But the roof was low and his wife gave him no peace till he built a new house with a kitchen and two rooms. But people would always tell you they had better luck in the old house. In the older houses the bedroom was small, just the length of a bed. The wall stairs of an old house with a room of that kind are out in Gorton Hinson yet. I stepped in it myself and the room is seven feet long. The floors were either clay or flagged with flagstones from some quarry. Most of the houses had a half door as well as an ordinary one. The door was fastened inside by a wooden bolt and the outside, if the people were going away for a day, it was locked with a padlock, a haspen staple that you got for a shilling. There was a latch too on most houses, a homemade wooden one or an iron one that you bought. The houses were hardly ever bolted at night, just left on the latch. A beggar could get a bed of straw beside the fire in nearly every house in the parish in those days. The carpenters made the chairs and tables and dressers and wooden beds. People made three-legged stools too, out of bog fur, and a house with children would have a supply of creepies or low stools that anybody could make. A lot of the old people never used chairs or stools, but would sit on a bag at the fireside with their back to the hob or backstone. The Auguster, Owen Roddy, a friend of McGlinchey, used to sit that way and always wore the back out of his wily coat first. The wily coat was a thing the people wore instead of a coat. It was like a waistcoat with sleeves and was made with long points in front that they could tie together. Some wily coats had horn buttons. The wily coat was made of white or grey or black wool and had no lining or colour. The trousers were white and grey and had a string tied below the knee. The knee garters kept the bottom of the trousers out of the wet and left the trousers full about the knees if a man was working. In my father's time, the height of fashion for men was a pair of black corduroy breeches buttoned at the knee with gilt buttons. The coat was a skirted coat. It was short in the front like a waistcoat and had two long tails behind down the back of the knees. The stockings were long and came up to the knee and the shoes were low but covered the ankle. All the young fellows at that time wore a caster hat. That was the whole style. Jackie McElhenney and his brother Neil went to Carn one August fair and got the sovereigns from their father to buy casters. The hats were that apiece. That's how they would dress up for the chapel or a wedding or anything like that. About home, they made less to them. My father hardly wore shoes or boots about the house in the summertime. And it wasn't him alone, but everybody else of his time. I knew a man in my time to get married and the second pair of shoes ever went on his feet. I wore no shoes myself when I was young. The men and women used to carry the shoes on their shoulders when going to chapel until they got as far as Skiog and then they would put them on. They would take them off again on their way home. People wore martins in my time. They were long stockings without any feet and reached from the knee to the ankle and to the top of the foot and had a loop for linking over the big toe. The rest of the foot was bare. I wore martins myself. All the women wore shawls long ago. They were not made at home but would be bought at furs or in Derry. Bonnets and cloaks was another style with the women. Up until my young days, everything the young people ate was produced at home. After the corn was threshed, every house got a melder or a measure of meal that lasted them for a year. In the morning, for their breakfast, people took oat and brahan or porridge and milk or maybe oat and bread and milk. The oaten scones were hardened on an iron in front of the fire and there's nothing as tasty with a layer of butter on it as oat and bread. At dinner time they took potatoes with salt and buttermilk or maybe they would have herring or a bit of fish or rabbit for kitchen, which was anything outside the staple diet. They used to call pepper and salt dab at the stool for fun. Fish was the thing people went in greatly for. There was a Dr Kearney from Cross Connell, a son of Liam Bond, 
And he said if people use their own butter and any money put out on kitchen to spend it on fish, that they wouldn't need a doctor the longest day they lived. Dr. Kearney used to bleed people from a vein in the arm. Bleeding's a thing that's done away with now entirely. In the evening, the people took oat and bread and milk again. And then a pot of brachan was made for the supper. For the supper too, they used sawans, made from the dust of the oaten meal. When it was boiled, it froze like carrageen moss and was very nourishing. People went to the strand too, at the time of the road to moor or the spring tide, and gathered a knusak, a load of shore food, of all kinds that made good kitchen, dulce, slug and carrageen. As well as oaten bread, they made flour bread too, on the griddle. They made boxty bread, which was potato bread, by grating down raw potatoes and mixing them with, with flour. Boxty is a thing I didn't see made for supper. People too had eggs and butter, and hens and ducks and geese, and kept pigs, so they were never short, but nearly all the eggs and butter were kept for sale. It was all wooden vessels they had at that time, for there were no tins or pans or buckets. They had tubs and barrels and piggins, which were pint measures, and every house had a supply of noggins, or gugans, they called them. A noggin held a quart. A long stave was left standing up on the noggin and on the piggin for a handle. The dishes were wooden and made all in a piece and of different sizes by the wheelwright. The noggins and piggins were made by the cooper. Coopering was a great trade in times ago. There were six or seven in the parish alone. Now one cooper and Carn does all the work for the whole of Inishowen. The coopers put bulrushes, bulrushes between the staves and nothing would ever leak that the bulrushes were in. The Breslins used to cut bulrushes in the lock. Owen O'Breslin made a kind of a float with ladders and planks and boards and went out cutting the bulrushes with a long pole with a hook on the end of it. The rushes would be cut when in seed and tied in bundles and taken to dairy and sold to the coopers at sixpence a sheaf. It was a pleasant job on a nice warm day in August with your feet in the water. The sacks that they used before this were made of lint and that was grown and spun and woven at home. They were very strong and gave great wear. Some of them held, held 24 stone and some 40 stone. People had creels and baskets too, the same as now. A thing that was in every house long ago was a murlog, which was a round, narrow mouth basket. It was a round affair made of rods with a hole in the side of it. It was hung up on a peg in the side wall and held things like balls of wool or socks or kriflog, which were odds and ends of any kind. Cradles were made of rods too, and had wooden rockers on them, or sometimes they were made to sit on the floor without any rockers or feet. The murlogs are all done away with now. At night time, there was no light about the house, only what came from fire. A woman or two used to sit to one side of the fire, clothing or carding or spinning with the light of the fire. The rest of the house would be in darkness. If anybody came into the house, someone always turned a turf in the fire to see who it was. The men sat about the kitchen chatting and telling stories or maybe singing sometimes. Some of the old people could keep the house going till bedtime. There was nothing else the men could do after nightfall. I often heard my father telling about a night some men came to lift a woman from the glen. Long ago women were often seized like that and taken away to marry some man. There was a mentioned girl named Betty Barr and one night the band of horsemen came for her. She had a sister, Katie, that wasn't so good looking. The men looked in the window and saw Betty cloving lint on a stool in the corner and Katie at the spinning wheel. The men moved in then but the girls happened to change places and they took Katie down the road where they had a horse with saddle and pillion ready for her. They discovered their mistake 
there and let her go, but they didn't get back for Betty, for the Glen was alarmed by that time. Seizing women that time was called fudak by the old people. In my grandfather's time, or before it, there was a girl from the lower end of the parish seized and taken up about Kinago or Bankrana. One Sunday after- afterwards, her father saddled his horse and went up to see her. The people of the place were away at mass, about the hill somewhere, and he found his daughter in the house. She warned him he would be in great danger if they came, came on him about the place. She made a scone for him, called a torching bug, and hurried him away. They overtook him at the brook in the glen that divides the two parishes. As soon as he got across and into his own parish, he turned to face them and put his trust in God and the chairman of Clunmania and fell to them with a cudgel of a stick he had and killed them as they came forward to him. The people that were killed were buried at the spot and it's always been called Shruhan the Gurp or the stream of the corpses since then. Many a time I fished that brook when I was a boy. For going about the house, the people used fur splits. They were nearly as good as a box of matches or a candle. They made candles at home too, with a lint thread or a peeled rush for a wick. This was dipped in tallow and let harden and then dipped again till it was thick enough. When they went to the bar to milk, someone took a coal or two or three fur splits to show them the light. If you were outside and looked about you after night, you wouldn't see a light far or near. On Christmas morning, everyone lit a candle in the window and you could pick out the houses on both sides of the glen when you would be going to early mass. At night, the fire was always raked by covering the coals over with ashes. It was easy getting the fire lit in the mornings with good rakings. People rake the fires yet. I raked the fire myself one Saturday morning in 1932. I went to the Eucharistic Congress in Dublin and didn't get back till Monday evening. The fire was living in the rakings all the time. People didn't make the candles at home in my time. They were to be got in shops. Lots of the houses had small brass lamps without any globe. They burned paraffin oil that gave more light than a candle. Then the big oil lamps with globes came in. And sure now there's electric light and whatnot. In my early days, there were very few clocks. People took their time from the sun. In odd houses, you would see a wagged tail clock. It was always kept in the room. Men went around with packs, selling and fixing clocks. A wagged tail cost one pound. I remember a man by the name of Fowler who went around the glen when I was a young fellow. When he would be fixing a clock, he used to mix up all the wheels on the table to frighten the women. They thought he'd never get them put back in the right places again. 